0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very, very excited for this uh, this episode. This is a return guest from season one of the show. This was one of the very first uh, guests. I think it was episode 17 that we recorded. Um, Marlene Suk is jo- joining me today. Thank you so much for joining, Marlene.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so the last time we recorded, we talked about your, uh, your book, um, riddled with life. You may not even remember me. I look so much different now, but I was memorable because you helped me. I was on crutches at the time. Do you, re- you remember? Are the is it coming back now? It,
1: it it is, but that was a really long time ago. <laughs> that
0: was a very long time ago. Yeah, it was 2015, 2016, something like that. I I was I was committed to starting this podcast. I was so excited to start and my my first episode, um, was supposed to be two days after, um, I had broken my feet and it got delayed. And then I was so committed to, uh, still doing the show and so excited about it that in my travels, I I would have to have my guests come down to my car and wheel all of my equipment for me as I crutched into the office. And, and I just remember having a really terrific conversation I think we even touched on um, at the time your your book paleo fantasy and and teased a little bit of uh, the your sex on six legs book as well but just so uh, so listeners are familiar with all of the um, uh, pop science books she's written in the last decade or so um, uh, check that out but today, I'm very excited because she has a brand new book coming out. Wait,
1: what's the, what's the release date on this again? The official release date is in August, but you know, you, it's, 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 it's right essentially, now. yeah, it's essentially available now. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So you can order it today and I'm excited to, to see that there's a audio version available for pre-order as well. The book is Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test, How Behavior Evolves and why it matters thank you so much again i know my listeners this is um uh since we last talked so many years seven seven plus years ago um we've gone on to talk a lot about these sorts of topics that uh that your book discusses so this is way in the wheelhouse of my listeners. They're they're really going to love your book and, um, and this interview today. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, I guess, your background first, and then let's get into the book.
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a professor in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. And I've been interested in animal behavior for my whole career, I mostly do work on insects, but I'm interested in lots of other kinds of animals, too. And um, I don't know. What else do you want to know? Um,
0: Oh, I I know what uh, I want to know. So since you've been on last, we've added a visual component, mostly to share highlights on Instagram and stuff like that. But people can watch this on Spotify and YouTube you're in a peculiar looking room right now. You joined and I thought, wow, you reserved like some sort of sound booth media space or something like that. Well, you've really gone above and beyond for uh, to get the audio right. Tell us well, about where you're I, at. I
1: hope that I have gone above and beyond, but, you have, um, you have. You but no, uh, where I am and the reason it looks so weird is uh, that uh, the insects that I mostly study are uh, crickets and we study cricket communication and cricket song. And so what we do is record them in a room without a lot of external interference from other sounds called, it's, it, I call it an anechoic room. It's not really anechoic because it's got objects in it that are not just sound absorbing. Um, but anyway, there's sound foam on the walls, uh, just like there would be in a studio. And, um, so I, you can't see it, but uh, to my right, there's uh, a kitty swimming pool that's got a grid marked out in it um, where we put crickets and watch where they move and then record that and then record their songs and so forth. And uh, it turns out, who knew, that someone who works on insect song is actually really well suited for doing audio interviews.
0: <laughs> so, first of all, why am, I, why am I not hearing crickets right now?
1: Well, I couldn't possibly be doing that and talking to you at the same time. Come on, you know. Are are they
0: are they in are they in some they, they, sort no, they of They're not
1: in the room. They, <laughs> we I, use this as I, an experimental room. They, they are not in here all the time. They don't live here. Uh,
0: uh, I see. I they, see. They don't, I this see. is our experiment like, room. Yeah. This is our
1: experiment room. We we they they don't live here. They live in oh. in growth chambers, incubators that I have in another room in the lab. But but anyway, so well,
0: can we get into that research a little bit <laughs> sure. before we get into your, because <laughs> sure. I, I, I know, I, I know your, I know your book is, is much more broad and, and, um, and, and talking about kind of the interaction of, of genes and environment and, and the, uh, kind of getting rid of the, uh, not getting rid of but uh, but addressing the kind of cliche paradox of nature versus nurture and and that sort of thing but let's talk about crickets first
1: sure let's talk about crickets what do you want to know
0: <laughs> so what what's a what's the usual study what are you working on like when you sure, get okay, done no, with this like, interview like, yeah, what like, are let you going to do give today you
1: the thumbnail. yeah no let yeah. me let me give you the the brief version so um, cause the system I, that I work on and, and what we've been doing with the crickets is really, I, well, obviously I'm biased, but it's really cool. So, um, so crickets sing, everybody's heard crickets sing, or at least I hope everybody's heard crickets sing. They chirp at night in the summer. Um, and depending on where you are in the country, um, you know, they'll, you can hear them much of the year, or you can only hear them for a few months, like in Minnesota. Um, but in any event, when you hear crickets chirping, what it is, is the males calling to attract a female. And so they produce this uh, calling song and the female comes over. And then, you know, if she wants to mate with him, she mates with him. And then um, uh, he fertilizes her eggs and then she goes and lays her eggs and that's it. So it, this is interesting from a whole bunch of perspectives. But what I've been, st- but and so what this means is that generally speaking, from a male cricket's point of view, calling is a good thing. And the more you call, the more likely you are to attract female and the better that is. And that's what, you know, then you can. To have more babies and that's what evolution is all about. However, in some places um, it turns out that when a cricket calls, he not only attracts females, he also attracts a parasite um, that's a oh. fly and the fly hears the cricket's call, homes in on it and then it's a fly that is um, uh, carrying its lar- it's a female fly that's carrying her larvae. she drops these larvae on and around the male cricket. And they're very tiny. They're barely visible to the naked eye. Uh, and what they do, these larvae, is that they burrow inside the body of the male cricket and they develop inside it, uh, eating what a former student of mine used to call the gooey bits, Um And uh, eventually they kind of eat the cricket from the inside out. They emerge, they pupate, they become an adult fly. They kill the cricket in the process. And the whole thing is really essentially the life cycle that the movie Alien was based on um, (laughs) because, you know, they go bursting out of the cricket and, you know, it's all very dramatic and gory and everything else.
0: So, but it's way worse because that's just one little chest-popping alien <laughs> that you have coming out of you, not well, <laughs> how, how many flies yes. we talking. Well, potentially
1: there could be more, but really one is bad enough and one is certainly enough to kill you. Yeah. In any event, so I'm interested in the evolution of behavior and the evolution of mating behavior in particular. And so this whole gory life cycle poses some interesting issues, not least of which is, okay – so from the standpoint of evolution, like I said, the male that calls more gets more females. But wait, if you're in this situation with the flies, then the male that calls more also, stands, also risks getting uh, these parasitic flies and then he'll die, which is bad. And so you have these opposing forces of selection that act, you know, At the same time, but in opposite directions Mm -hmm. and trying to understand what happens in evolution when you get opposing forces like that is something that's interested people since Darwin. Uh, And this is a really, really cool way to study it because, you know, the cricket, the male cricket is just in this bind where the more he calls, the better it is. But the more he calls, the worse it is. But then the more he calls, the better it is. You know, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, And so where we've been working in this system is in Hawaii, where there's a an introduced cricket. Actually, it's not native to the Hawaiian Islands. It was brought there by people. We're not even sure when. And the cricket occurs in lots of other places, but only in Hawaii it gets this fly. I mean,
0: you. how do you mistakenly have crickets with you on a on a six-hour flight to Hawaii and well, not, they've, they've
1: not notice? They've been there for at least since the, eight, the late 1800s. Oh, and okay. so there's actually two options. One is that they came on ships, which it's pretty easy to bring insects and lots of other stuff. Um, right. I mean, Hawaii is so full of introduced creatures. I mean, it's, it's actually... A huge problem from the standpoint of conservation. It's caused lots and lots of species to go extinct. We could spend this whole hour talking about just the issues associated with introduced species to the Hawaiian islands, but setting that aside. So the crickets either came on ships sometime during the 1800s, but the other somewhat more... um, I don't know, intriguing possibility. And we've, we've not, I've not gone back to this to try and figure it out for sure. Um, But uh, the Hawaiian islands were colonized, as you probably know, by uh, people from Polynesia in uh, maybe about 1500 or so years ago. Um, And so they arrived, you know, relatively late. They, you know, that was um, long after the rest of the Pacific had been populated. And one of the things I've always wondered is whether crickets could have been brought with those Polynesians, potentially deliberately, because it turns out that in at least some Polynesian cultures, people think that singing insects are their ancestors that are communicating with them. And um, I actually got firsthand confirmation. So I'd read about this. Um, I got firsthand confirmation of this once uh, when uh, my husband and I were in the uh, I think we were in Fiji. uh, And we were, we were in a place where you you really don't see a lot of um, tourists, you know, like you wouldn't expect to have just, you know, a couple of people hanging out there. And we were having lunch someplace. And the waitress asked us, um, uh, you know, kind of basically, what are you doing here? And I said, Oh, well, um, I, you know, like, I'm, we're we're scientists. And so I'm studying things here. And she's like, what are you studying? Because usually, you know, like, I, I kind of downplayed the whole thing. So Mm -hmm. she said, what are you studying? And I said, insects. And then she said, oh, really? What kind of insects? And it's like, oh, all right. You know, like clearly you just, you're you're pushing. Um, And I said, crickets. And she said, oh, crickets, I have many crickets in my house and they make so much noise. Sometimes I think I should just kill them. And then I think, oh, no, because it could be a relative. I shouldn't do that. And she laughed, you know, because she kind of knew that was an offbeat thing to say, but she said it. And I've yeah. always thought, whoa, this is really cool. You know, clearly this is something that, that, you know. So anyway, so I wonder if maybe they brought crickets deliberately to Hawaii, but um, it's
0: interesting. I, so yeah, so that, that's, kind, did, of a, that's you, kind
1: of a sidetrack to, to everything else. But the point is the crickets are not native to Hawaii and it's only in Hawaii that they get this parasite.
0: Really? So, uh, I mean, uh, f- first of all, that must have been weird to tell her that you are studying her ancestors. Apparently, <laughs> well, and I also no, no,
1: that's not exactly how, <laughs> how how they view it. But anyway, no, but it was yeah, just yeah. cool because you know people. It is. Cool. I, I think people have lots of associations with singing insects um, that that are really fun. I, I think you know people like. I mean, the two big insects that people really love are butterflies and, well, maybe the three. So they like butterflies, they like honeybees, and they like fireflies. And those are all like really, you know, charismatic um, insects. But I think crickets are kind of charismatic. People like their songs.
0: it's a, it's a wonderful reframing. I'm a comedian. And so crickets uh, have a negative connotation. <laughs> that's in, right. And, that's right. You know, when, when my, they say,
1: oh you, yes, you, 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 you you know, come up with a, you know, a joke and then, and then crickets. And I feel like, yeah. and what's wrong with crickets? Crickets are a cricket.
0: good <laughs> That's, that's just the insects giving me a standing ovation that's because right, that's they right. get my jokes at right. a, a deeper level than the audience sometimes. Um. So, so obvious, so this is just in Hawaii, but But beyond just parasites, there's there's seemingly a clear reason why the females aren't making all of these noises. It seems like you're attracting all sorts of trouble when you're as loud as this from uh, from uh, someone trying to get rid of you in your house to a more uh, natural environment where you have. I'm sure birds and other insects and everything else looking for a meal. And so, so, so males are, um, kind of, uh, hedging this bet. There's a, there's a pros and cons to, um, making all this racket is, is there, are there any indicators that they're, that they're taking, um, environmental cues at all for like, are they, are are there situations in which they, they they go into Navy Seal mode and and, and oh, keep it? Oh, it's it's much it's,
1: it's much cooler than that, Shane. It is much cooler than that. Hit so me. I had been working on these crickets for um, quite some time in Hawaii and looking at the different ways that you know there were adaptations um, on the part of the crickets, and then um, in the early two thousands, we made this absolutely astonishing discovery, which is that the crickets in Hawaii, um, started showing this wing mutation. So, so let me back up a little bit. So do you know, so crickets produce their song by rubbing their wings together. Um, so there's like a structure on the back of one wing that rubs on a structure on the front of the other wing. Um, and I always tell people, it's kind of like, uh, as if you were making a noise by running your fingernail across the teeth of a comb. So it goes like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what crickets do. And they have specialized structures on their wing. The males do have specialized structures on their wings that enable that sound to be produced. And they time, you know, the way different crickets have different kinds of songs is because they they have different, slightly different structures or they time the wing closures differently and so forth. But in Hawaii, I noticed, and it happened incredibly quickly that a, a whole bunch of the males had a mutation that made their wing structures such that they could not produce the song. So they literally, so so the population in Hawaii had literally evolved this whole new type, a new morph of crickets that are like, I mean, they're still members of the same species. They're like their, you know, fellow crickets in every way, except it turns out it's a single gene and it changes the morphology, the the appearance of the wings. And are they we, still
0: doing like pseudo calls, like trying yep, to? Yeah, okay.
1: they are. And so what this does is protect them from the flies because the flies mm. have to hear them in order to find them. But mm. the um, but, the, but of course, then it poses a problem for the females. And so a few things i mean one of them is again it's a really amazing example because this happened within a few years which is about 20 generations cricket time and to have an evolutionary change in a population that fast is really extraordinary um and especially to have a change that happens with the loss of the signal that you use to attract mates. I used to tell people that it's kind of like if all the peacocks in the world just woke up one morning and the males looked around and it's like, whoops, that whole big tail, it's just gone. Mm -hmm. That's, that's like what happened. Um, and, and so we've been interested in that ever since and have been studying that in a whole bunch of different ways. And some former colleagues or some colleagues of mine that used to work in my lab and are now, you know, off on their own are doing really cool genetic work and, um, really cool work in other parts of Hawaii and so on and so forth. So it's really led to some interesting discoveries.
0: Wow. So that's, I I mean, one of, one of the things that I um, try to remind myself and my listeners and blab about it is, uh, is just this idea that, um, you know, from kind of an alien anthropologist point of view, if you, if you look at evolution over time it's it's you you really have to be careful about assigning um judgment to features like saying something is good or something is bad because these these first males that had the this pseudo call and couldn't do this i mean this is uh, to anthropomorphize the the this is a Uh, this is like a horrible kind of
1: birth defect. This is a
0: disability. This is Tiny Tim and Scrooge or something. And then it just so happens that, um, uh, and like how in the world is this guy ever going to get laid? And No, that's that's exactly
1: right. And it brings up these really interesting questions. That's exactly right about evolution and about the idea that, okay, what happens, you know, What makes some mutations, I mean, it's a really big question in evolution. Like, why do some mutations take hold and some don't? And what does it take to have that happen? That's a huge question in evolution. And so we're looking at that by trying to understand why exactly what you said, that a trait that ordinarily would doom, you know, any cricket that had it to disaster is... Now become established in a population.
0: Let me throw one of my favorite concepts at you. Um, it, it doesn't have to do with crickets or or your book, but I, I bet you'll I bet you'll have some examples. I really like thinking about evolutionary holdovers. These these things like, like the pseudo behavior. So you've lost the ability to do this thing. Why are you still rubbing your legs together? Well, because every everything else uh in and um in your in your dna stayed the same and there was just this one gene that changed what is it the shape of the wing or something you said that that now makes it um so you can't make this this sound and so now you're just wasting this energy and, and so so if someone if someone were to study crickets for the first time and know nothing about crickets and this is the first cricket they see they would they'd be dumbfounded. Why in the world is this thing wiggling about like this? What's what's the function of that? And it's just this bizarre holdover. I'll, I'll give you an example of one of my favorite ones. And I, I don't even, I I should really fact check this more because my understanding is it's it was speculation from a paper um, like a decade or two ago. And I, I don't know if there's follow-ups, but there is... Um, these sea turtles that go all the way from the the west uh, coast of south africa to the east coast of uh, south america just to lay their eggs and and it just seems it's this epic journey that's just so long and trying and uh, they're in danger of being eaten and everything else why aren't they just laying the eggs right where they are and there's speculation that well this behavior adapted during Pangaea, and that started as a river and each generation that river got a little longer. And there was at some point an adaptive advantage to like, well, you just go uh, across from the river. The predators don't eat your babies and th- that got further and further, but now it's just in you. It's uh, you have this instinct to just, let's go, let's swim that way. And so now they're, they're kind of, um, uh from an objective point of view going just so far out of their way for uh, potentially no reason whatsoever um where they could just lay the eggs where they uh, where they're at instead do you have any any examples like that that you can think of where,
1: sure i mean, I it's, mean it's just I,
0: I, life's riddled with it it seems
1: absolutely and and i think that so what you're saying illustrates a principle about evolution that um, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, winner François Jacob uh, 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 had in a paper from the 1970s that was published in Science, in which he started talking about how evolution is a tinkerer and not an mm-hmm. engineer. And so what right. he meant by that, and and I think that I think people really need to think about that more than they sometimes do. Mm-hmm. That what evolution does is more like you know, somebody who's in their garage and wants to build a, I don't know, a machine that'll do whatever. And so you have to use the parts that are in the garage, right? You have to figure out like, all right, I'm going to make a bridge and I'm going to use this piece of plywood. And then there's a piece of a bicycle and I'm going to like put them together. And I happen to have, you know, a soldering iron and I'm going to do this and that. And the other thing, an engineer yeah, it's a grill with,
0: that's also a bicycle, so exactly, you can take yeah, your, yeah. your picnic with you and yeah. not have to carry as and,
1: many and Whereas the engineer says, I need a bridge, I want it to look like this, I'm going to go make parts for it. But evolution can't do that because evolution doesn't make parts, it just works off of what's already there. And so right. evolution is just, you know, this is why, for instance, there's all these weird mismatches and... Um, you know, the fact that, and trade offs and stuff that, you know, mm. doesn't work right, and, you know, your appendix, and the fact that, you know, being bipedal gives you back pain, and the fact that, um, I don't know, uh, people choke on their food because of the way your larynx is, is arranged in your throat relative to your esophagus. And, <laughs> is that I, you know, why that? Happens? Oh, yeah, no, I, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that where, sure. If someone were starting from scratch and saying, I'm going to make this perfect, that's not how it would have looked. But evolution is a tinkerer and not an engineer. And so, you know, what you were just saying, I I don't actually know the details about the turtles, but yeah, sure, why not? You know, it means because no one says, all right. We're going to make a turtle and we're going to make this turtle lay its eggs in the best place. Let's have them lay their eggs over there. There's no one saying that. Instead, you just have turtles. And the turtles that made more turtles made more turtles that did what their parent turtles did. So it's just as the saying goes, turtles all the way down. Um, But (laughs) Although in a somewhat different context. But anyway, you know, it's Yeah. Evolution's a tinkerer and not an engineer, um, and and if if you keep that in mind, a lot of the stuff it's still super cool, but it doesn't seem as weird because, yeah, you had to make it that way because you just had certain things lying around in the garage.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about the throat, and it reminds me of um, this this odd appendix-like feature of of giraffes where the what 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 connects the the nose to the, to the mouth it doesn't but whatever through evolutionary time there was some bone that got like hooked behind that in the in draft so so now the the uh the passageway from like if the giraffe was going to do the spaghetti trick and and put the spaghetti through its mouth and its nostril, it would be going all the way down almost to its shoulder. This makes no sense. Yeah, That's
1: another good, really good example. Absolutely. That's another example.
0: And, um, and, and so it it must be, it must be really hard as a scientist who is human, who has all of these evolved features, which, which make us these amazing storytelling and meaning making primates. It must be really difficult to not get trapped sometimes and in, into thinking like, "Oh, this this thing must have a function," um, yeah, and sure. trying yeah. to figure out what that function is, yeah. and then figuring out, "No, that was." Hey, I, uh, how how much has how much has um, understanding. Um, uh genetics and and um and our our modern technology of of really being able to understand um genes and now follow back and you can kind of see like oh there must have been some past relatives somewhere along the way this this must have happened a hundred thousand years ago this other little change must have happened a million years ago and and now if you're uh, with, with modern tools and, and knowledge and training, we can see all, all of these peculiar paths within um, uh, given organisms' DNA, which helps a lot, but boy, before that... How could you not see a pseudo call and think like, that must be for something? It can't, you wouldn't just be doing that for no reason whatsoever.
1: Yeah, no, I, you know, you're right. Trying to figure out what things are adaptations and what things are just spurious is a challenge. Absolutely. But I think it's something that scientists have been aware of, of for, you know, a pretty long time. I, it is tempting. You're absolutely right. It is tempting to come up with stories. And I think people do this about humans more than about any other creatures to say, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we like hamburgers or we, you know, want to put hats on or whatever. That must've been adaptive back in the whatever, um, because <laughs> of some reason. And sometimes you're on to something and a lot of times you're just making stuff up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so another one of, uh, uh Another one of my um, favorite things to think um, about—that's sort of related but different—is I I really like when these instances of convergent evolution happen, where because you're saying you know evolution's the tinkerer in the garage, it's throwing crap together with whatever it has or. Uh, and, and put, trying to put things together in novel ways, a lot of times just uh, mostly making a lot of just broken things that are going to be useless, and then once in a while a serendipitous mistake, and you've solved it. You now know how to make this like amazing scooter or something because you tried on all of these dumb other ideas, and from that came up, stumbled upon these insights and evolution can sort of be like that but then there's things like um like the brain that that uh that it certainly in in vertebrates, uh you know makes sense once it starts taking off but it's in octopus uh, octopus as well um where just completely my last ancestor was 600 million years ago and and in vertebrates don't tend to have that many, uh, 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 that much like robustness in the, in the, um, uh, in terms of central nervous systems. And, but once in a while, things like that, or things like flight just pop up or, or weird, um, burrowing behavior that's completely independent of there's some burrowing type weasel in north america and another one that looks almost just like it in south america and boy the, these things nearly even look the same but they have no uh no related ancestry it's just you're in an environment where burrowing makes sense and if something stumbles upon this thing it, it just seems to take off um, I'm, I'm not sure that I have a question for that. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just ramble sometimes. But I'm just wondering if you have, if, if there's any, like, if, if you find yourself thinking about the, some of these convergent um, yeah, behaviors yeah, sure. as well.
1: I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about animal behavior, and as you say, thinking about the variation in animals that's out there, everything, I, I'm really interested in how people think about animals that are like people and animals that aren't and why they always want to make things to be like people. And uh, it's almost like there's, I mean, and this is something that I talk about in the book a lot, that, that it's almost like we want there to be this contest about like intelligence or about, um, you know, how animals do different things. And so we get fascinated with certain species. So, you know, chimpanzees can, you know, they're using tools and they have, you know, this complicated social behavior, but then, oh, well, dolphins, dolphins have this really interesting uh, signature whistles where they recognize individuals. And then, oh, so, you know, it's like we're making this basket where, you know, oh, we're going to put chimpanzees in with us and other primates. And then, oh, but now we're gonna put dolphins in there. And then, you know, now there's all this research on how crows and jays and their relatives um, use tools and they have all this flexible behavior. And so, oh, we need to put that in there. And then again, <laughs> octopus are totally having a moment right now. Like everybody is, <laughs> is you know, like, yes, octopus, everybody's all whatever it about octopus. You know, and then the, they ne- get bo- the Netflix then they get movie came out about recently about this stuff. And, and, yeah. and it's like, I, I, you know, I always feel like, where are you going with this? You know, like, why? Why is it so important to you to, like, put everything in one basket? And then who else is in the other basket? And what are these baskets for? And like, why are you right. doing this? And I think some of some of it is that. Uh, on the one hand, people really like finding continuity with us and other species. And I love that continuity too. It's part of why I find animals fascinating. But at the same time, everything doesn't have to be like us. I, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't have to imagine the, and and you see, I'm always really interested when there's an article about animal behavior, like in the New York times or something like that, And then there's comments. There's almost always people who say, "Well, of course, all other animals have thoughts and feelings just like humans do, and you know, like that's that's you know a given." And why are we so self-centered that we think that only humans are the ones that think and feel and so forth? And my reaction to that is, it seems to me it's really self-centered to think that everything would think and feel the way humans do. Like we don't we don't expect animals to be like us physically, like. We're perfectly happy with the idea that the kidneys of kangaroo rats are really different than the kidneys of people, which are really different than the kidneys of insects, which don't even really have kidneys. They have this weird thing called malpigeon tubules that do the same function, but they're completely different. And it's like, and no one goes like, oh my God, who has the best kidney? Like, it's just, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not a thing. But when it comes to thinking about learning and intelligence, we seem to be really hung up on like giving the world an IQ test and it's like, which animals slot mm-hmm. in where? And it's just, it's that's, just pointless.
0: That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic, um, uh, point. And, um, I mean, I will, I will stick to, uh, my position that, uh, flight seems fairly adaptive, and I get why it's come, on, uh, come up here. But, here but the there. idea
1: that like but, everything doesn't have to fly the same, right? Uh, right,
0: and, right and we're right. totally
1: okay with right. the idea that bats have, you know, different kind of wings than birds, which have different kind of wings than insect right. wings, and no one like gets fussed about. But which is the best wing? Who has the highest, right. most developed wing? Um, well, we probably don't do that because people don't fly. And so we don't really care that much, but, but it's, it's just, it's an odd approach, I think. And, and I think that that this idea that our two choices are, oh, either everything's exactly like people in all of our thoughts and emotions and, you know, every worm has, you know, jealousy and anger and, you know, (laughs) schadenfreude (laughs) and everything else, or else the alternative is that humans are humans and everything else is a robot. And, and I just think, oh, come yeah. on, those are not the only two alternatives. Like why yeah, why yeah. are we why do you wanna back everybody into a corner like that? It just doesn't make any right. sense to me. Um, and yeah. so, so a bunch of what, what the book is about is thinking about like, okay, what we're really interested in here is how behavior evolves. Like how do you mm-hmm. get behavior in insects where they're using tools or where they're having dominance interactions and as you say, they shared a common ancestor with us so long ago that we know it didn't come from the same place. And so how does behavior evolve? And I, I think that's really the question people are interested in, or at least I'd like for them to be interested in, rather than, oh, who's smarter than who? Because I, 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 I think the, whole yeah. who's, the, the who's smarter than who, like, like I said, where are you going with this?
0: Um, yeah, you know, yeah. it,
1: it really, it really doesn't make that much difference. And the, the octopus thing is funny because I, I mean, I love octopus. Octopus were actually the first animals that I did a project on when I was an undergraduate um, mm-hmm. in California. And I thought they were super interesting. Although the project we did was not all, all that interesting, but you know, like, okay, octopus. Yeah, right. they they do octopus things and people, they've almost like reverse engineered it where they're surprised by the fact that like octopus don't live very long, for instance. Like that's, that's a, you know, and they're like really puzzled by this. And I, I, so I full confession, I have not seen the film, my octopus teacher, but a really good friend of mine did. And do you know this one? This is the way it won a a bunch of awards. Yeah, It's why
0: why everyone's blabbing about Um, it. Yeah.
1: And, um, And so my friend of mine saw, saw the film and she was just overwhelmed. She's not a scientist and she was overwhelmed with this and thought it was fantastic. And she said, oh my God, it was just so awful because, you know, at the end, like I was crying and my husband was crying because, you know, how can something like just, you know, have their babies and then just die. And, you know, like with all the love in the world, I just kind of shrugged and said, yeah, you know, like lots of animals do that. And I, and I, you know, I I pointed out to her, hopefully, helpfully, you know, that cockroaches do that. Cockroaches mate and then they die. And, and, and she just looked at me and she said, well, that's at least good. Um, but, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, anyway, I, I just think it's like, okay, yeah. they just do what octopus do. I, I I'm just not sure right. why. And, and it's like, we're, what I mean by reverse engineering is that we start by saying, okay, we think we're intelligent as humans. And we think that, and we also know that we live for a long time. And we also know that we live in complex social groups. And we think that our intelligence evolved as, you know, in part because of being in those complex social groups. And we think that our communication abilities um, were really linked with our intelligence. And we think that our ability to manipulate our environment. Okay. So that's why we're all intelligent. But then we look at octopus and we think, oh, wait, but they seem like they're intelligent and they don't have any of that stuff so what they're the not hell?
0: they're not social they're at not all social. they're not, know, not manip- uh, i mean
1: they can manipulate their environment a little bit but not, you know not a lot of
0: sexual selection you know, even right, happening yeah, with it's them. just not
1: a thing and yeah. and i feel like people are like perturbed by that because they've reverse engineered what an intelligent animal should look like by saying well this is what humans are like we're intelligent so you should only be able to get to be what we call intelligent by having right. the characteristics that we have that we said make us intelligent and after a while, it just gets impossibly right. circular. Like, what's the point here? Um, right, and in end, right. like the- octopus do what octopus do, and it's super cool. But they don't have to yeah. be like people.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess so. There, there's always there's always this push and pull between anthropomorphizing and anthrodenialism as as well, and yep. and then but uh, I, I think I think you know, e- egocentrism is is something that is um, something that requires almost it needs to be trained out of you I mean I mean it, it's really it, it's it's really understandable I think to be because for whatever pressures happened um, with humans I mean I I think I think most people would be surprised to even consider that maybe much of what our uh, the adaptions of our brain don't have the kind of tool use utility or whatever that we would uh, think. And, and maybe so much of it had to do with uh, sexual selection and status and and advertising using a bunch of fancy words that don't have a bunch of utility to um, advertise the robustness of that brain that hasn't been impacted by parasites or has, has had good uh, development or whatever. And so it, I think I think I can kind of see why it's projected. I, I think with octopus in, in particular, from, from, uh, from, if you want to understand how the brain works, it's just a, it's, it's a very good example of how a brain can function very, very differently. Yep. Um, and, and still be like pretty robust or what, what it, it is. I, I would love to hear your, your thoughts because I, I, take it you get into this in the book uh, a good deal about this idea of what is intelligence anyway and we we tend to say you, you see a dog get get wrapped around a chair with its leash and you go look at that dumb inferior dog and but a raccoon isn't doing that and it's not because a raccoon's smarter or better in some way but it's, it was used to having to back up in trees and things in certain Circumstances and retrace its steps, and so it's just kind of adapted uh, that behavior where where dogs never really had an opportunity or an advantage in the untangling of leash gene to to take off in the population. So so I, I would I would love for you to talk about kind of animal intelligence and in whatever capacity, and it, it seems like kind of almost debunking um, the the phrase in some ways entirely, right?
1: Well, no, I mean, not really. Like we, we think that the word intelligence is useful and I, you know, who am I to argue? I, I think it's fine. But what I think is a problem is, like I said, when we get into this idea that we're going to rank the whole world, like everybody's, you know, going to take the same IQ test and we're all going to come up with, a list somewhere that of course will have to end up with people at the top. And then I don't know where you start with. And actually that idea that you can rank animals or well living things, period, is a really old idea. Um and uh you know, is something that the ancient Greeks talked about and so forth, and it's called a scala naturae, um, or scale of nature. And the idea was um that uh, and then it was picked up on by lots of other people and it exists in sort of an informal way even today um because the idea is that okay you have lower organisms starting with i don't know depending on how much you know about organisms you could start with a worm or you could start with an amoeba or you could start with whatever you wanted um and then you know gradually you go from you know uh worms to other kinds of invertebrates. And then you end up, you know, somehow with vertebrates. And then, you know, it's kind of like those diagrams, those evolutionary um, progression uh, cartoons where they show like the fish going on to land and then the fish, you know, gets legs and then the legs make it a mammal. And then it, you know, you have this, you know, and then they go on and on. And eventually you uh, end up with something that looks like a human. And it's always, a guy and eventually the guy has a spear and then the spear, you know, ends up with a guy like, you know, hunched over a computer. Um, And so the idea is, oh yes, look, this is how we've progressed. And, you know, now we're, we're all, you know, sort of sedentary and whatnot. And, you know, those cartoons are used for a whole bunch of reasons, but I mean, those cartoons are just, you know, they're funny, but they're just terrible because they're completely wrong about the way evolution works, which is not Mm. progressing toward anything or, trying to get anywhere. And it certainly doesn't put some organisms above others. Um, I always mm-hmm. tell people that, you know, you, you don't want to think about it. Like you think about makes of cars where, okay, like cars today are like way better than model T Fords. Right. I mean, they really are like they they run better, they're safer. They're, you know, they're better. I mean, they just are and you know the car manufacturers of course would have you believe that every year you know like the 2022 Honda whatever is better than the 2021 which is better than the 2020 and so on and so forth and you know you can argue about the details but basically the idea is that we're making better and better cars as things go along because we get better at doing it evolution is totally not like that evolution has nothing to do with that you are not improving anything you're not making anything better you're not like advancing evolution is not progressing toward the perfect organism it's it it's just not everything that's alive today is just as evolved as everything else that's alive today some things like crocodiles or cockroaches look more like their ancestors from hundreds of millions of years ago than other things like people or um, viruses but Okay, so doesn't mean anything. We're not mm-hmm. like advancing toward anything any more than, I mean, it's it's sort of like this convergence any more than having the kind of eyes that we have or the kind of eyes that octopus have. It's just they just have what they have, um, right? And you know, so again, I'm I, I'm staring I, at the title of your thing, and here we are. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean that's uh, it's it's I the name of the show was was kind of uh, you know my my interest in science would some sometimes just have me kind of feeling lost in a sea of chaos and and uh, and
1: well, see um, you know you just need to it, embrace the chaos because it's and, it's and that's really, what here, not, we is. Yeah, uh, really like well, here we are yeah it's not really chaos it's it's yeah. more that we're not advancing toward anything and I think if you understand right. that then you stop asking these questions about like, oh my gosh, why would wasps be able or, you know, ants or whatever be able to use tools? Because that seems really weird because their brains are so tiny. I mean, you can certainly ask the question of how something with a small nervous system and few neurons can do complex stuff. And that's an interesting question. But Mm -hmm. who is smarter than who is to me not an interesting question
0: right well I, I mean I think it's I think it's really appealing to um, believe that you're aware of of your behavior more than you are and and like kind of in control of your behavior and making more accurate predictions and and things I, I think that's I mean those are two big stressors as. Lack of control and predictability, and I, I think that uh, that we've we've probably adapted um, psychological biases toward um, assuming that we have a lot more um, control and are mindful of. You know, if you if you just ask, you can pretty much go outside and ask anyone the meaning of life, and very few <laughs> people and. Unless they're a scientist, very few people will say I don't know. <laughs> Most people will take a whack at it. That's, <laughs> I, that, that's
1: yes, I, I, that is know? interesting. Yes, because I was thinking, yeah, you might do that. I would never go out and ask people that, but yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, I, I, I guess it, I guess it 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 follows that it, you know, as someone that loves blabbing about evolution to anyone that will uh, listen to me, I I know that some like. Some very, very simple basic concepts, by my standards or academic standards, are sometimes either mind blowing or just impossible to uh, take in for, for some people unfamiliar with these concepts. And I, I think that it is, there is just this intuitive feeling of like it's moving in a direction. It's, it's why wouldn't it be going? toward this perfection and look at us so lucky to find ourselves at the pinnacle of this perfection I mean you can sort of imagine green like alien things that are like us but with bigger brains (laughs) and maybe larger hands and are better with an anal probe or whatever but but like we're pretty great and 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 uh, everything else is just hasn't quite got there yet, but everything's moving towards us because we're the, we're the closest to perfection you can be. I I think that there's just these tempting um, kind of, again, sort of egocentric intuitions that um, are a little bit difficult to overcome and and challenge. Um, So uh, Marlene, I've, I started this podcast mostly just because I I just wanted to trick scientists into riffing with me about how, (laughs) how life works, but we need to talk uh, more specifically about your work because, or your book rather, because I, I want people to pre-order it. I want, I want people to be interested in all of these things that, uh, that I know that you've explored in your past work as well. So can you, um, can can you give us like a, a general rundown of of what the book is? I know we've been touching on some of it already, but give me the uh, give me the pitch.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, it is really what we've been talking about, about how our ideas about animals and about how much animals are like people fit into the way we think about what seems to be what I call in the book, a zombie idea, which is this nature nurture idea that you can take behavior and you can always divide it up into, well, is it learned or is it genetic? And I think that at some level, we, we really kind of know, like we really do know that that's a false dichotomy and it doesn't work, but we still keep coming back to it. And I think that a lot of our most naughty problems in the world are in some ways about the way we think about nature and nurture and the example, one of the examples I use is, you know, the Me Too movement is, you know, at its heart about whether men or males are just inherently going to be, you know, taking advantage of women and that there's nothing we can do about it because it's just genetic or it's just their evolutionary heritage or something like that. There was an article, there was an op-ed in the New York Times that I, I was reading several years ago that while I was still developing the idea for the book, that, uh, was uh, something about the inherent brutality of the male libido. And, um, it was really interesting cause it was essentially saying that, you know, oh, well, but, you know, men just have this inherent inherently brutal sort of sex drive as it, as it were. And, and that, you know, that's just always going to run up against the desire for, you know, more sexually egalitarian societies. Um, And it was really interesting seeing, you know, like people responded to it, they said all this stuff and they, you know, do or don't believe it. And I I just think that this idea that, you know, okay, you want to know, like, is stuff really genetic or is stuff really just environmental or is it all just culture or is it all just instinctive or is it, it, it's this zombie idea that, that scientists feel like, okay, we've put that to rest. And then it bobs back up again. And it's just, it's like the undead. It just won't seem to to go away. Mm. So the book talks about why it is that behavior, first of all, we don't get hung up like that about other kinds of traits. Like we don't feel like, well, you know, is your height due to your environment or is it due to your genes? And like, if somebody asked you that you would say, and I think most people would say, well, duh, it's both. Of course it's both. And it interacts because if you have crummy nutrition, when you're growing up, it affects your height, Um, But also, if both your parents are short, then probably you're going to be shorter. Like, duh. Mm -hmm. Well, the exact same thing is true. That exact same interaction is true about every other characteristic you have, including your behavior and including all Mm -hmm. animal behavior. So Mm -hmm. all traits all the time are always a combination of input from the genes and input from the environment. And what's more, it's, it's their interaction. That's important. And so why are we so hung up on this? Like, oh no, I want to know whether being maternal is an, I want to talk about the maternal instinct. And it's like, well, I mean, being maternal is a combination of input from the genes and input, from. but it's like, people don't almost want to think about it like that. Um, but it's, it's just as true for behavior as it is for other kinds of traits. So I spend a bunch of time in the book talking about why behavior is like other kinds of traits and it's not special and it's not different. Um, and, uh, and then I talk about like, well, so, okay, how does behavior evolve? And the answer, the short answer is it, it evolves the same way other traits evolve. It's just that sometimes it can be harder to study because it's a little, it can be harder to measure because, you know, it, it's ephemeral, it disappears, but it's still, mm. you know, it evolves the way other traits do. And in terms of our relationship with animals, there isn't like this secret sauce that suddenly, you know, oh, okay, we develop, you know, we evolved emotions, ping, like, you know, the emotion fairy came along sometime in our evol- evolution and all the organisms that existed before us didn't have any emotions. And then all the emotions starting at some ping and then after did. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. But at the same yeah. time, it doesn't mean we have to be like every other animal because we're not like them physically. Why should we be like, we be like them emotionally? And I, like mm-hmm. I said, I feel I'm, I'm interested in this idea that people think, oh, well, you know, there's just this core that you can't change or or whatever, which I it's just is just not not the case. I got interested in it when, when I started hearing listening to how people talk about dogs, because you know, on the one hand, everybody's totally happy with the idea that Chihuahuas and Great Danes look different because, you know, okay, their genes are different. You know, you took Chihuahuas, you took, you know, you took their ancestors and you bred little dogs and you bred big dogs. And then you took the littlest puppies and the biggest puppies. And, you know, you know, I mean, obviously that's crudely put, but basically that's what you do to get dog breeds, right? I mean, that's, that's how you got all the different dog breeds is you took puppies and you bred together the ones that you, thought looked the most like what you were after all right everybody's totally happy with that and then you say well what about behavior well sure but at the same you know like we do we we have a kind of weird dichotomy about it because on the one hand well we know that behavior evolves and we know that behavior changes even in dogs retrievers are called retrievers because of what they do not because of how they look but every a lot of the dog training stuff and a lot of the dog food commercials are based on this, oh, well, you've got this inherent wolf. They're all wolves inside, right? They're all like little wolves and they all, you know, come from this, you know, thing that you can't change where, you know, they're, they're, they're pack animals and you have to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's just, I don't know, can't you change stuff in behavior the way you can and the way things look? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is not to say that dogs aren't pack animals. I mean, they are, but but I think we need to stop thinking about behavior and other things so in such a separated way.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, I don't know how accurate this statement is, but I, I think I think with humans, I think it's I think it's easy to take credit for the the good things that you may have or have earned or whatever the uh, favorable position. Uh, that you may find yourself in life and you go like, well, that was the environment. I earned that with my grit or whatever. And then and then when the negative things happen, you go, oh, well, that's just the way that it is and it's genes. And what are you going to do? About yeah. It?
1: So I, I, I totally agree, except that at the same time, we're absolutely fascinated with talent, right? Mm-hmm. With the idea that someone can play the piano at age four because they're a genius, which they must have inherited. So there's this really funny back and forth about it that I I find really fascinating. But yeah, I agree that people want to think that the positive things are stuff they did for themselves. So it's environmental and the negative, you know, I mean, if we should probably put this to a stop before we start talking about free will, because I really don't want to start talking about free will.
0: <laughs> we don't. We but don't we, need we to don't get need into to that. I'm, I'm having. Yes. I'm having Robert Sapolsky on on soon to talk about his. Yes, new but, book but anyway, term, we don't. We so don't need to go we'll there. Do, we'll do that in a different but, episode. But
1: I. But in some ways, you know, it does impinge on that because people want to think about the degree to which what they're doing is inevitable, and. I just think that for behavior as well as for physical characteristics, everything is a combination of stuff from the genes and stuff from the environment, everything,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, it's I I think that I think another thing that's um, kind of not as intuitive for people and a a little harder to wrap your head around, which I, I think you pointed to several times now, which is. That we sort of get morphology. We get like, oh, I, I get it. Humans, we we got these imposable thumbs, and just like that's how evolution works. And that's that was the last time evolution worked on us. And, oh right, and the idea that evolution uh, has stopped. Yeah, the idea that evolution
1: stopped in people is certainly another weird misconception that people have too. Yeah,
0: and, and also just that uh, that uh, I think it's not intuitive for people to think about how evolution has has acted on the brain and then consequently our our behavior um as as well so i i think that it's um i i think again I, i mean i i think the kind of blank slate model of the mind is is intuitive for for a lot of people that are outside of uh, outside of the sciences, is not familiar with a except lot of they also concepts. want to talk
1: about maternal instinct and they also want to talk about right. you know the sex drive and they also want to talk oh, about yeah. you know talent like you know oh I'm just really good at that right, or right, you right, know right. that or they want to talk about how you know men have a gene for you know talking about sports and women you know like yes and I, I find the the sort of I see I, I find it really interesting that you know yes and no
0: yeah, you've, well, you've had, you've had a lot more time to, uh, to think about and articulate and find examples of different contexts for these subjects. So I really look forward to, uh, digging into your book when it comes out. Um, I'd love to have you back on as well. Could you give me, lo- I love animal behavior. I mean, not, not to separate humans from animals, but, um, what, what were some of the fun, um, the animal examples that you enjoyed writing about in the book?
1: Oh, well, so so the title, uh, The Dancing Cockatoo, it was super fun. Um, this is Snowball, who is a sulfur-crested cockatoo who uh, just rocketed to fame uh, quite a few years ago now um, in YouTube because he uh, can uh, dance to music. And there was this hysterical article in The Guardian that uh, said... Um, It started as some things must with the Backstreet Boys. um, And, uh, you know, was and then so Google, if you have not already Snowball the cockatoo um, and you will see lots and lots and lots of uh, YouTube videos of him dancing to music and so then this becomes this whole thing of, well, what does that mean? Because he can keep to the beat and he will, you know, do stuff. Although there was one somewhat, it was a slightly disparaging comment, I thought from the paper, the, so people have studied, you know, psychologists have looked at this and, and have studied it. And, um, and they said, Oh, well, you know, snowball. Um, but most of his gestures consist of bobbing his head and swaying back and forth, you know? And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you've seen most people dance. I mean, that's all they do too. Um, it's not like, you know, most of us are, 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 are in the bull show, you know? And so, um,
0: I got nothing on that cockatoo. I can promise you that. Yeah, see,
1: exactly. You know, but anyway, you should. So that was super fun. And thinking about, well, so what does it mean if a cockatoo can can move to music? So that was super fun. One of my other favorite examples is of these um, little, 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 little little, little, tiny spiders that um, are so small that like their brains kind of spill over into their legs, and so. Um, which as the authors of the paper on that uh, said, uh, gives new meaning to the phrase thinking on your feet. Um, and uh, the, but that makes you think, and, and then you think, well, okay, if you're that tiny, and by that tiny, I mean, like they're the size, the whole spider is the size of maybe the head of a pin, probably the tip of a pin, like they're really tiny. But even though their brains are so small, they can spin like complex orb webs that look a lot like, you know, the ones you would see in your garden that would be 20 times the size. So, mm. um, so that's, that's just two examples of, of things that I really loved uh, uh, finding out about and writing about.
0: And as we wrap up, what's, what's, uh, what's the dead man test?
1: Ah, so the dead man test is um, something that uh, uh, some psychologists who are from a school called behavior analysis uh, came up with as a way to define behavior, because it turns out that, you know, so if I ask you what is behavior, and I have a whole chapter on that in the book, it's actually kind of interesting how hard it turns out to be to define it. And the behavior analysis people have, I mean, it's, obviously kind of tongue in cheek, but, uh, they say, okay, if a dead man can do it, then it's not behavior. And if a dead man, um, uh, or sorry, if a dead man can't do it, um, uh, uh, then it's behavior. And if a dead man, uh, can do it, then it's not behavior. So that's, that's <laughs> the dead man test.
0: Interesting. Well, everyone check out, uh, pre-order today, um, dancing cockatoos and the dead man test. Um, and, and I, highly recommend, uh, riddled with life, uh, especially, um, uh, people have, uh, more of an interest in viruses than, than when the book came out, uh, perhaps. Well, that
1: is probably true, (laughs) Aren't we all, yeah. uh, And,
0: uh, it's, it's something that I've been absolutely fascinated by for, uh, for a long time and I've, I've talked about in some of my stand-up shows and, and stuff I, in spite i have i have some material and insights that you may have heard me share on other podcasts that were inspired by the book riddled with life it was a, a fantastic book and paleo fantasy uh might, might be it, it, you know since you wrote that I, f- I feel like some of the paleo stuff it ha- has started going away a little bit i mean there's always a new fad coming in all of the time because now it's now now that now it's about like um I don't know ice baths and and things and like these these uh, like now it's about torturing yourself again and and, and less about <laughs> well, like our,
1: arguably the paleo diet was about torturing yourself too <laughs> but we don't need to get into we we don't need to get into that yeah yeah um,
0: fair enough but anyway. And sex on sex uh, sex on six legs as well you you guys have heard me talking about uh, mating behavior and insects and and things before and uh, I'm I'm sure you'd find it. Uh, find it to be just as captivating as a uh, subject as I do and hearing people like Barrett Klein and uh, people like that on the show so uh, so yeah so make sure and check out all of Marlene Zook's books Zook's books uh, Zook rhymes with books by the way if you're wondering how to pronounce it correctly (laughs) And thank you so much, Marlene, for joining me on the show. Well
1: thanks thanks a lot for having me. This is it's it's always a pleasure talking well, to you. Well, let's
0: not go another seven years. Let's uh let's get <laughs> you back on again um uh sometime soon. Maybe we'll go back and, and talk about uh the Sex on Six Legs or, or one of your uh one of your other books that we, we haven't had a chance to dig into. But uh, great. I, I appreciate right. you and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week.